Yeah, you're looking at Second uh, Peter chapter one. Let me read from Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians two. Finally, brethren, and brethren in Scripture means brethren and sister, and it's a generic term for men and women Christians. So fellow Christians, pray for us. This is Paul and the team on the second missionary journey, Silas and Timothy, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified. Not that our ministry profile would go up, but the word of the Lord would, would spread rapidly and be glorified. That's the first thing to pray for. And secondly... That we will be rescued from perverse and evil people, for not all have faith. For not all have faith. And many people don't just disagree with our faith, they are very um, uh, threatened by it, and, consist, and, and increasingly are feeling like they have to repudiate it and even silence it. Uh, Let's look at 2 Peter 1, 12 through 18 this morning. Let me just read that passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and then we'll work our way through it. And Trevor, the, the point of this exercise is for us to read through this passage now in about 43 minutes for you to be able to read through it in your Bible and know what it means. And that's gnosis. That's head awareness. Then you have a decision to make. Are you going to embrace that as transforming truth that you're going to use to fashion your worldview and your convictions. But that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you, repetitions and mother of retention, of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in them, in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, he knows he's about to be executed for the faith, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, his physical death by martyrdom, is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, because the fate's going to go right on after Peter, James, and John go to heaven, that you'll be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's an example. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father at what we call the transfiguration, at the transfiguration, such an utterance as this was made to him by God the Father, that is the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, Jesus Christ is, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this. We heard the voice of God point at Jesus and say, this is him. And in fact, the uh, the gospels say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. <laughs> That's number one priority. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, this morning, we're going to see that the truth of our Christian faith is bigger than people, even the apostles, because it's founded on fact and it's not fantasy. Okay, Let's pray for teachability, and as is our custom, and we're happy to do it, let's pray for our troops and our peace officers and also our firefighters. And uh, David Stribling, if you would uh, pray for us in that direction. Okay.
You know, we always share this picture of these three peace officers that were killed a couple of years ago now. But just yesterday in Ohio, two police officers, peace officers were killed. Um, a senseless tragedy. Makes you want to cry. Uh, before we dive into our text, let's have a, an ATWA. You know what ATWA stands for? Abstract Thought Warmer Upper. You're going to have to think, okay? You're going to have to think to get this. And so we're going to talk about the dangers of modern technology. Now, many years ago, when one of our World War II heroes, his name was Bill Shelton, started coming to this church, he was blind because of his World War II injuries and other things that happened. And he'd sit on the back row there with sunglasses on. And the first couple of times he came, this guy visited our church, I knew why he was wearing sunglasses. He wanted to be able to sleep in church and nobody knew about it. That had to be the only reason, right? So I was wrong. He didn't wear sunglasses because he wanted to sleep. He wore sunglasses because he was blind. And I found out a long time ago, both at church and at Cameron University, if somebody's looking at their phone uh, during church, they're not necessarily wanting to uh, ignore me and tweet or text or uh, or check their email. They may be looking at their Bible because when some of us think open our Bible, they don't think a book. They think this. And that's fine. There's no beating technology. So uh, technology is a wonderful thing. It's a two-edged sword. It's a good thing, a bad thing. But here are a couple of cartoons on the dangers of modern technology. This is uh, looks like a student of mine at Cameron University. Uh, and sometimes people will turn in outlines or papers that are so well written you know they didn't write them. They don't talk that way. They don't write that way. So I've been in that situation before. Not with any of Dustin's work. But uh, anyway, the teacher said, did you really write this? And the student says, yes, I did the book report myself. I found it on eBay myself. I bid on it myself. I paid for it myself. And I printed it myself. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, this is a lady getting a briefing on their company-provided health insurance. You can get a discount on company health insurance if you let your coworkers diagnose you with information they find on the Internet. <laughs> so that eliminates one doctor visit, right? And that's a good thing. Well, not a good thing if you work for a doctor, but it's a good thing for saving money. And then here's a doctor talking to a patient. It's a pacemaker for your heart. Plus, you can download apps for your liver, kidneys, lungs, and pancreas. <laughs> yeah. So this morning in these verses, 12 through 18, Peter stressing the truth of the Christian faith is bigger than he is, was, is bigger than people, even the apostles, because it's fact, it's not fantasy. Now, when you look at the overall book, three chapters of Second Peter, it's basically saying that a Christ-centered life and hope should motivate believers in middle school or high school or retired or anybody in between to embrace a lifestyle of true wholeness, holiness, getting Christ right at the center of your pie chart, and to avoid the heresies, doctrinally and morally, of false teachers. There's always going to be people trying to make money in the religion business uh, by denying or watering down real truth in a way that's attracted to people. So you got to watch out for that. Now, the structure of the book looks like a three-story building with an arch over it, the arch, which kind of tells you the whole point of the book, is at the very end of the book, Growing Grace and Knowledge, the passage James just read for Call to Worship. And then the first floor is holiness, second floor is heresy, third floor is hope. At this point, 
We need three volunteers to help us with the visual aids. We're going to get two youth group members. Do we have any volunteers? Okay, I saw you first. And I, you, you were volunteering her? Okay, you, you, and you. Okay. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. And I, I should know your names, but I don't. Tell me your names again. You're King. Okay, King, get up here, buddy. Carly, I know you. You're Billy. You're the best looking Billy I've seen in a while. Okay, yeah, let me, let me show you what we're doing. Line, line up here, just, uh, King, you be in the middle, okay? We'll have you the, uh, the two roses and the thorn, right? Okay. Anthony, uh, Anthony Foreman made us some visual aids here, and some of the folks haven't seen it, so. In a minute, I'm going to ask you, Billy, to turn this around, but I'll turn it around yet. Just, just hold it. And then King Carly, right there. Okay. Now, yeah, we get that. So, what are we saying? The first chapter is basically about. First chapter uh, on the bottom floor, holiness. Turn it around, sister. There's holiness. Right. That's chapter one. However, once you get Christ-centered. Your holiness is wholeness. Right. Number two, heresy. That is a that is a hairy sea, right? Can you tell? That's a hairy sea. Now, heresy is false teaching. Quite often, these people quote the Bible, but they take it out of context. They they say stuff it's not really saying. Okay. Um, just keep that there. That's great, King. And then what's the uh, top story there? It's hope. And our hope is built on the first coming and the promised second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you you keep that there. Flip them around again. And uh, just to make it more challenging. What's the first first chapter about? Yeah, flip her over, sister. Billy. Yeah. Holiness, but it's not a bunch of holes in us. It's kind of getting Christ-centered, so we live a life of wholeness. Okay, what's the second chapter about? Heresy. Heresy. Yeah, King, what's that look like? That's a hairy sea. Good job, man. (laughs) And then the third chapter is what? Our hope. And, you know, our hope is just not, we hope something might work out in the end and Jesus wins. He's already come the first time, died, and rose again. So he's got a track record of fulfilling prophecy. And he's going to do do it on the flip side also. Man, you guys did that very well. How many? We didn't rehearse or anything, did we? I keep it. No, you can't keep it. No, it's, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. <laughs> hey, but but King, uh, you can ask Anthony Foreman next time he's here and you you're here. I'll try to get you together if you can talk him into making one of those for you. More power to you because he he's a nice guy. He might do that for you. Okay, today we're going to come to the second second part of chapter one. Begin it, and we'll Lord willing finish it next week. Uh, by the way, I I was watching the golf tournament yesterday, and I saw something I had not seen before. There's a new CBS sitcom called Living Biblically, and I don't have no idea where they're going with it, but I did see it, a trailer, and then I went to the internet, and they're they're pulling up all the old bromides that you hear about. You know, if you, you're going to live biblically, you can't wear uh, anything but either all cotton or all this because you can't mix fibers as a, as a statement in 
uh, Leviticus about doing that. It makes sense in context. doesn't apply to us. Uh, uh, I'm going to say a, a word about that. I'm going to show you that trailer next week and kind of deconstruct what I think they might do. And who knows? You know, they may end up with the idea that this guy is a bumbling uh, fella who's crazy enough to try to live the Bible comprehensively, which means out of context, and still make him a well-meaning, well-mannered person. I'm not sure what the overall force is going to be. But the the one thing I have seen, they just made a, a giant strikeout on the first main thing. They're applying the Old Testament law to New Testament unbelievers in ways that nobody would that I know of in the Christian circles would think about doing, and they're kind of using that as an example. So in addition to looking at the first uh, to the last couple of verses of chapter 1, Lord willing, next week, uh, verses 19 through 21, we'll uh, look at that trailer and say a few things about that TV show and tell you kind of how you should think about stuff like that. But anyway, we're coming to the second part of chapter 1. Uh, first, we saw that uh, holiness, which is what chapter one's about, right? Involves us growing spiritually as believers and expressing a godly character and good, good works. And now we're going to start in verse 12. Look at the second part of chapter one, that holiness comes through believers, spiritual growth in believers. Shauna Mitchell and Sherry Harrington and Carla Buchanan through an embrace of God's faithful word, the truth of God's word. And we're using this acronym SGIB in honor of my good friend Gibbs, Gib Lovett. But around here, SGIB stands for spiritual growth in believers, right? So let's look at verses 12 through 15. Uh, the truth of our Christian faith is bigger than people. And we're going to see uh, Peter revealing old truth because he's old and because he's about to leave. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in them, in the truth, that is, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am here physically in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my physical death, is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me back in John chapter 21. And I will also be diligent that at any time after I'm gone, you'll be able to remind, remember, remember what I told you about these essential truths. Uh, you kind of got uh, what Peter is doing in verse 12 and why he's doing it. Uh, he's reviewing the truth of the faith. And if you look at this, Blanche, you know the answer to this. Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, what do you do? Look back and see what it's there for, right? It's going back. To something else. And really he's going back to everything he said up to this point. Notice he says that his readers are believers. They receive the same objective truth about the faith, about Jesus and reality that he had, the apostles had. Then in verse 2, notice he says, and I could trick question. Hey, Ron, do you want more grace and, and peace in your life? Do you want more peace of mind in your life? Do you more, want more grace in your life? The way you get it says in verse 2, uh, is by or through, uh, the, or in, by and through the knowledge, the, let's call it the, not the head, uh, insight, but the heart conviction about God and Jesus and about reality. Then he says, think about it. Uh, God through his divine power has given us everything we need to grow spiritually, to become whole as Christians. And this is based on his many promises, not just about who Jesus is, but about who we are 
in Jesus. And then he lists these virtues we saw last week. He says, in addition to your faith, apply diligence and moral excellence and knowledge, which is the raw material. That's head insight that you got to move from your head to your heart. Self-control, and he lists those virtues. Those virtues are an effect of salvation. They're one way you can check and see if you're growing or moving in the right direction. If you're losing altitude there, uh, something's wrong. And if guess what? If you have a kink in your water hose in August, you're trying to wa- water your yard, do you call the Duncan Water Department? It's not their fault. There's plenty of water there. You just got a kink in your hose. So these virtue lists in Scripture are things that we're supposed to be seeing in our Christian lives are not designed so you can criticize other Christians better, but so you can self-critique, analyze yourself. Think of it as kind of a spiritual diagnostic test. And he says, if these kind of qualities are yours and increasing, then you won't be useless or unfruitful in your Christian life. But if you're not prioritizing doing the right thing as a Christian, even on prom night, even at school, then you are suffering from spiritual amnesia or bad vision. Therefore, be diligent to confirm the fact that you are different than everybody else in the world that rejects Christ, and there's a lot to look forward to. Therefore, in light of all that, I'll always be ready to remind you. And it's so funny, you know, as a, as a teacher, mainly at Cameron, my experience was uh, after a couple of semesters, I realized there's certain things I want everybody to understand, so I'm going to go out of my way to repeat them a lot. Like uh, we say that the, the the three keys to effective public speaking are the three C's, content, clarity, and connection. And I only say that about, what, 500 times a semester? 600. He's been there. And every semester, at the end of the semester, you know, final exam, I tell them up front, this, these will be three fill-in-the-blanks at the midterm and the final exam. Plus, when you give your speeches, you want to have content, clarity, and connection. And I'll have two or three people don't know content, clarity, and connection. And it's kind of like, but but quite often, those folks, after I've repeated it three times, and I'm going to repeat it 600 times, right? After about the third time, some of the folks that won't know it kind of roll their eyes at me when I repeat it for the third time. And I used to think, well, that's the person that got it the first time, didn't need the second time, now is letting me know three times is more than she needs. But I realize these other dumb dumbs, I mean, these other students <laughs> may need me to repeat it. But ironically, quite often the people roll their eyes are the ones that miss it. I think we've already heard you say that three times. We want you to tell us more stuff we're going to forget and miss on the final exam. So give us more stuff we haven't heard before. Uh, I know new and improved and something different and flashy is fun and people like that. But, you know, the, the basic foundations and fundamentals of the biblical truth and spiritual living haven't changed. They don't change. They're just always there. And if you read your Bible carefully, and I know Sherry does, uh, a lot of these basic principles are repeated all over the place multiple times because you don't necessarily get it the first time. And even if you do, sometimes you'll forget or you'll kind of slide or you'll uh, rationalize stuff you're doing or redefine it. And so repetition is important. It's just the way we're wired in heaven. We won't need repetition. Our sin nature will be gone, I think, first time, uh, every time. But right now, I'm going to remind you about the faith. I'm going to remind you about the truth. And he says in verse 13, I got to do it myself because I'm not going to be here much longer. Okay? I want to reinforce the main thing so that after I'm gone, say, hey, Peter had his quirks, but he did emphasize A, B, C, and D. Uh, Pastor Brad had his quirks, buddy. One thing he said a lot was, 
in the Bible, there are some things hard to understand. But the main things are, and they get repeated a lot, you know. If you walk away with that, that's pretty good. So I consider it right, proper, necessary even, as long as I am still around. And he's expecting his uh, his uh, execution to be very soon. And he says, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, that's the word skene in the original, it means tent or tabernacle. Do you know what the difference between the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple was? There are places where priests offered up sacrifices that talked about Jesus, but what's the difference? Permanence, yeah. The tabernacle was a tent. It was movable. They could move around as they were moving around. But once they established things in Israel and Jerusalem, David wanted to, but his son Solomon built the first temple, and it was a port, it was not a portable building, it was a solid, a beautiful, magnificent structure that was static, you know, that was uh, stationary. But he uses the word here, Peter does, that's used for the tabernacle in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and he's saying his body and your body is ultimately kind of a tent in which your soul resides, right? And, you know, it's made out of carbon atoms, and it's not going to last forever. Now, the, the atoms that your body's made up of, whether you're buried someplace or if you get blown up over Afghanistan trying to save people as a seal, and those atoms go all over the place, God's going to bring all those atoms together, and that's going to be the starting raw material for your resurrection body like Jesus had after his resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection because his remains of his physical body were supernaturally transformed. So it's very important. We respect the body, but it's just a tent. It's not really us. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, of my tent, is imminent in just like the way Jesus said it would happen. Back in John chapter 21, at the end of that gospel, Jesus says, uh, you're young and strong now. You can pull all of those 153 fish in out of that net that should have broke, but it didn't because of that miracle I did. Uh, but there's going to come a time when somebody's going to bind you and take you to places you don't want to go. And he's talking about being ceremonially uh, disgraced and crucified. And Peter, according to early church history, uh, requested to be crucified upside down. They were going to crucify him one way or the other. But he specifically said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord was. I want to be crucified upside down. And so he has that to look forward to. The idea that the apostles made this stuff up to get rich and famous is ridiculous. It's not what happened. It's not what they were thinking. And although some people have gotten rich and famous from the religion business, including the Christian business, that was not what the apostles did. And also, the apostles are not the basis of the church. They were the foundational generation of the church, but the basis of the church is Jesus Christ. Christianity is about Christ. It's not really about Christians. It's for Christians, but it's not about Christians, right? So verse 15, And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, so that after I'm gone, you're going to be able to call these things to mind. Now that word for uh, departure in verse 15 is exodus in the original Greek. What does that sound like? Exodus? What does exit mean? What's the exit? It's the way out. The exodus in the Bible is the Jewish people going out of Egypt and slavery to the promised land. It took them two, a generation to get there for various reasons. 
But he uses that same term. So Peter very much realizes he's on the New Testament side of the cross, but he realizes that he's standing on the shoulders of giants. We should appreciate our Old Testament heritage, but not put ourselves under the Old Testament law, right? Now notice, he's talking about departure in verse uh, 15, his exodus. That sounds a lot like, if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, or just flip your phone to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, whatever you need there. And while you're going to 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read uh, Philippians 1, and I'll catch up with you. Paul, the Apostle Paul, not Peter here, is talking about the dynamics of death. Now, that's something we all ought to be interested in because you're all you're going to die. The death rate is 100%. Now, we, we do believe the next event in God's prophetic program is called the rapture of the church. 1 Thess 4, um, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15. And that's the truth that every living believer, when Jesus comes back to start the end times, will be resurrected in place without having to die. He says, behold, we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we're all going to be changed, right, when Christ comes back. So, you know, uh, we may be that generation, but if that doesn't happen before our physical death, we're going to die. So there's something we got to be interested in, right? But Paul says uh, he'd, he'd love to be with the Lord because that's much better. To live as Christ, die as gain. But if I stay here, there's a lot I can do. And he realizes he's a, he's a strategic person. He wants to contribute. He's kind of like Lloyd and, and Katie and Eric and Ray. That Their love language is do stuff for people and do stuff for the church. And the more kind of under the radar they are, the better in their minds. Uh, and that's cool. That's very biblical. But uh, that's just kind of the way Paul was too. So he says, hey, you know, I'm not wanting just to, to escape to heaven so I can have... Uh, uh, you know, get away from all my enemies and my issues. I want to stay here and try to make points for the team as long as I can. So he says, I'm hard-pressed. It's not up to him, but I'm, he's hard-pressed as he thinks about those two alternatives. Having the desire to depart. Now, what did Peter refer to? Uh, how did he, his terminology for talking about his death? Uh, I'm going to be diligent at any time until my departure. You know, to depart sounds like at the airport, the departure time, right? So talking about departure from this body to be face-to-face with the Lord. Paul uses the same kind of thing. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart. I really want to be with the Lord, yet to remain on here in the body is more necessary for your sake, at least at that moment. And uh, so, you know, life is not uh, uh, anything we should take for granted or presume upon. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians. You guys are already there. 1 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, our body is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this body, in this house, we groan. Uh, and the older you get, the more you groan, right, David? you got to take the right supplements and exercise, though, right? Uh, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed... While we were in this tent, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but be clothed so that what is mortal be swallowed up in life. Now watch this. He who prepared all this for us is God who gave us his Holy Spirit as a down payment. Therefore, watch this. Therefore, in light of all this good stuff, be always of good courage. Cheer up. You know, it's going to get worse and get a whole lot better, basically. Be of good courage. Cheer up. Realize that while we are at home in the body here on earth, we're absent from the Lord. 
We walk by faith. We don't see him right now. But cheer up. Be of good courage. And look forward to being absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, since we're going to be face-to-face with him sooner rather than later, even if it's 90 years from now, that's a short blip in historical terms, uh, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to your pastor. Is that the point? No, be pleasing to him, to the one who saved you. The one you're first you're going to see, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Go back to Second Peter. So, uh, Steve was saying, well, you know, it seems like uh, not many people read and study First and Second Peter. We're all, you know, looking at other books. And, you know, Paul is so prominent. His books are so prominent. Romans, Galatians, Colossians, I get it. I love them. But, you know, these apostles are all on the same page. Uh, we're absent from the Lord in this body at death. The believer, put your name in the blank if you're a believer in Christ, is going to be absent from the body face to face with Jesus, right? So, that's verses 12 through 15. Truth of Christian faith is bigger than people. Even Peter, the big fisherman, made a great foundational contribution to the first generation church, but it went on fine without him, right? Uh, nobody's indispensable. And I mean, not even, uh, Billy Graham or Ron Miller, okay? I mean, uh, I'm not, I hope you hang around for a while, Ron, you know, take care of yourself and, you know, don't run stop signs or anything like that, but, uh, nobody's indispensable. So, uh, let's go to verses 16, 17. Uh, we're gonna look at a general principle and then a specific example. He's saying the truth of our Christian Faith is bigger than people, and it's fact, not fantasy, as confirmed by some unique people, the ear and the eyewitnesses of the apostles. But look at the general principle, verse 16. For we, and he's talking about the apostles who have been preaching all this, which is, was that truth was the basis of the first century church, and it, it just expanded rapidly all over the Mediterranean basin. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, and I love the King James Cleverly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We told you all the stuff we told you about who he is and what he did. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love that. The truth of the Christian faith. That Jesus came. Jesus lived a perfect righteous life. That Jesus died to pay your way into heaven. That Jesus rose again from the dead after he had been room temperature for three days is a fact, and these guys knew it and willingly died for it because they just flat saw it. There just was no way around it. We didn't follow cleverly devised fables or tales. And it's interesting, that word that's translated fables or tales is the Greek word muthos. We get myth from it. We didn't follow myths. We didn't invent this thing up so we'd be rich and famous. This actually happened. And that same word is used several places in first Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Now, James, you know what? What, what is? What do all the uh, seminary professors call First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus? Those three books. They're called the what? Yeah, they're called the pastoral epistles because Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus Bible Fellowship. Now, some people think it was First Baptist Church Ephesus, but that can't be right. It's got to be Ephesus Bible Fellowship. And yet, what he says to the pastor applies to everybody, at least uh, in certain ways. So let's see what uh, Paul says about this. Look at 1 Timothy 1. Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy and saying, Pastor Timothy, as I urged you when I left uh, Upper Greece, Macedonia, 
remain on at Ephesus. Just hang in there. It's not always easy. And some people don't appreciate it. And some people don't show up. And some people break their promises. And some people get mad. And people, you know, ask young pastors, you know, is it bad when people get mad and leave the church? And uh, you always say, yeah, it's bad when they get mad and leave the church. Only thing worse is when they get mad and stay. That's really bad. So, Have I told that joke too many times? 29 years in and they're finally getting tired of the jokes. <laughs> Probably bad delivery. For I urged you when I left the, the region near you, hang in there and instruct certain men that will write books that people in your church will be impressed by or watch their YouTube videos. I mean, Paul was really concerned about all these crazy YouTube videos that people were watching. Now, they didn't have that back then, but these people would come in with a big song and dance and dancing elephants, and everybody wanted to listen to the heretics over the preachers, you know. Uh, not to teach strange doctrines, not to pay attention to myths. That's tales, fables in Second Peter, same word. Endless genealogies, all these meanings and how many tent pegs there were in the, in the tabernacle. People read all these meanings and the things like genealogies that aren't there. Which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furtherance of the administration of God, which is by faith in facts, not tertiary level implications from the number of tent pegs in the book of Exodus. But the goal of our instruction isn't just mental knowledge so we can be self-righteous jerks, but agape love that comes through embracing God's word as conviction in our heart, heart belief from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And he talks about the same thing in verses 9 through 14. Hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the apostolic basic line teaching that won't change, and you're going to repeat it, and some people are going to act like they're bored, but they're the ones who miss it on the final exam, so keep repeating it anyway. Hold fast the faithful words according to the teaching, so that, and he's talking to elders in the church, that to be able to exhort and sound doctrine or refute those who contradict, but any mature believer ought to be able to defend the basic doctrines of the faith, uh, both morally and theologically, and refute those who contradict. Four, there are many rebellious men, then and now, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who are claiming to have special brownie points because they submitted to an Old Testament ritual, which doesn't apply to New Testament Christians, which apparently uh, living biblically is going to try to use as a big millstone over our neck, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That means money. Can you believe somebody getting a religion business for money? It happens, yeah. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths. There's our word for fable or tales, myths. And commandments of men who turn aside from the truth. Go to Second Timothy chapter 3. Well, this is such a, a seminal passage for me, the way I conceive of what it a pastor is supposed to be and do. Uh, and typically people will read uh, chapter 4, verse 1, but I want to get the context. So let's start in the last two verses of chapter 3. All scripture, including Second Peter, is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching. What else are you going to teach from the pulpit? You know, Reader's Digest? For reproof, that means we're going to step on your toes. For correction, we're going to help you see how you can fix your bruised toes. And just generally training in righteousness that the believer, the person of God, that's anthropos, which means male or female, 
may be mature, equipped for every kind of good work. And the good works that Olga is called to do aren't the same good works I'm called to do. She has a different personality, different set of skills. James has a lot of skills I don't have. He gets to do stuff that I don't do. But I've got some things I can do too, right? Now, with that ringing in your ear, the the truth is found in Scripture, and it's all about the truth in the Scripture that we focus on. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who's the judge of the living and the dead, and by the hope and anticipation of his coming his kingdom, teach the word, proclaim the word, not the reader's digest. Be ready in season and out of season. That's when it's popular, when it's not, when it draws a crowd, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't. Reprove, I mean, step on people's toes when necessary. Rebuke, that means, uh, you know, um, step on their toes again. <laughs> Uh, I wear, I, I wear, uh, industrial strength, the steel toed shoes when I preach, by the way. Um, with great patience means you're gonna re- have to repeat stuff a lot. Just because of the attendance patterns, much less because people don't remember. And instruction, for the time will come, and we are in that time in postmodern America, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Listening to the Bible for 45 minutes is way too much to expect average Americans to do. You can't, Build a mega church if you're going to have Bible exposition for 45 minutes where people have been trained only to concentrate with stuff that's exploding and colorful. Well, you know what? I know that's what the uh, the experts say, but I'm reading this. Just keep doing it for the time, even though the time will come when people aren't going to want to hear it. They don't. Going to they want to go to a rock band and a motivational speaker. They want to want to hear their ears tickled, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers accordance in accordance with their own desires. Uh, they'll turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to muthos, to myths, to tales, to fables. But you be sober in all these things. Be spiritually alert and aware and don't let the cultural trends uh, divert you from what you're supposed to do. Endure hardship. Uh, it is a weight to try to do this thing the right way. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Go back to Second Peter. So he's saying... We did not make this stuff up. It's not muthos. It's not tales. It's not fables. It's not distortion. It's not made up. It's not misinformation. This stuff actually happened. That's the general principle. Now, verse 17 and 18, as we close, let's look at the specific example. And he doesn't talk about uh, the cross or the resurrection. He kind of assumes you know that. He's going to another superlative example of who Jesus is and what he did. Here's a specific example. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, verbal affirmation, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. That's a title for God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves. Now, who who was present at the transfiguration? Bible, Bible trivia time. Jesus, right? Who was there? Which, which the, all 12 disciples? Peter, James, and John. And who else showed up for this party? Moses and Elijah. The prophets and the law, right? The Messiah who f- fulfills all that and going to take the apostles to the New Testament era. It's all there. And you've got the voice of God the Father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Please listen to him. Now, you know, Peter sees this as a superlative example in the life of Christ. 
And I think he put the cross and resurrection in a special category at the very top of Mount Everest. But he says this is a, this is a hugely superlative example that this is really happening. It's really true. We saw it. We heard it. Look at this. We're not just talking about eyewitness, but earwitness. We ourselves heard this. We heard God speak out loud and validate Jesus as the uh, unique Christ, the Savior, this God-man Savior, when we were with him on Mount Hermon, 9,200 foot high. Lord willing, we're going to go to Israel in May of next year, and we will go to the Golan Heights, and you will see Mount Hermon. And we'll go to Caesarea Philippi at the base of that mountain, 9,200 uh, feet tall slab of uh, limestone. It's got snow cap all year round. And all that water in the Sea of Galilee and Jordan River comes right at the bottom of that, just kind of filters through that, comes out, gushes out at Caesarea Philippi, and goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. And in addition to three nights in Jerusalem and three nights in Galilee and one night in Tel Aviv, we're going to have one night on the Dead Sea. We're actually going to sleep in the Dead Sea in a boat. No. No. The itineraries are set up now. We're going to stay in a nice four- or five-star hotel at the sea, Dead Sea. Can you believe that? We're going to be on the Sea of Galilee or very close to the Sea of Galilee for two nights uh, or three nights, and we're going to be at the Dead Sea one night. So you're going to see all this stuff. And when I show you my Israel pictures, I always say, real people, real places, real events. And that's kind of what he's saying here. In so many words. Now it's interesting. You know, you might think that Peter would, when you're emphasizing the truth, the factual nature of the eventual life of Christ, would focus on the death and resurrection. But he assumes, because he's writing to believers, they know that. They believe that. They hold that. Let me give you some more stuff. Not as seminal, but also very good. But ultimately, the reason that Jesus is unique, because nobody else in the history of world religion, claimed to be the way, the truth, the life, then died and came back alive again after he predicted it. And his death wasn't just as a virtuous martyr. It was the whole epicenter of his mission. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us. That means uh, Ken Wanzer and Henry Ward, right? I'm just going to start calling you Clyde. Okay, because it's easy to remember. I mean, for some reason, I keep calling him Clay, even though I know his name's Henry. Uh, or for uh, Jeff Skinner or Jerilyn Harris. That, that's why he goes to the cross, right? He who knew no sin, who committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us. That's the epicenter of why he's here. But all this other stuff, too, that you read about, the apostles told us about is true. Now, what is the gospel? I was watching something on Christian television. Every time I watch Christian television, I always end up with a headache, you know, because these people will define stuff uh, in such bizarre ways. Uh, if you wanted to go to a Bible passage that specifically said, Amber, what the gospel is. I mean, the word gospel is used hundreds of times in the scripture. But where's the one place it defines it? Say 1 Corinthians 15. Everybody calls it. Go, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're almost done. The happy ending's very close, folks. Cheer up. It's almost over. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Everybody calls it the resurrection chapter, and it is. But they probably call it the gospel chapter because he just says flat out. Now, let me remind you, brethren, about the gospel, which I preached to you the first time I came to Corinth years before that, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're saved. If you hold to the gospel I preached to you, 
Unless you believed in vain. What does that mean? You didn't really believe enough. Now, believing in vain means if Christ has not been raised, then your faith in vain. That's verse 14. If Christ really didn't rise from the dead, then it's vain. But here it is, verse 3. Here's what the gospel is. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that one, Christ died for our sins. That's what I just said, right? He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering. Christ died for our sins. Now watch this. Substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He paid your debt in your place. How do we know he's dead? Well, Scripture said that, predicted it, Old Testament, validates it, New Testament, and he was buried. You don't bury people who are alive, right? Betty, they're going to crawl out of that tomb if they're alive, right? He was a corpse. He was His body was dead. But a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven, Trevor, but the resurrected one's the only one who can, and he's the only one who's been resurrected. Buddha hasn't been resurrected. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Baha'u'llah, who started the, the Baha'i faith. These guys are all still dead. But look at here. He was buried, raised on the third day according to scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas. He was resurrected. He came back alive again. Uh, he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's Peter. Hey, we saw this, Scott. We heard it. There ain't no doubt this happened. I know there's all kinds of ways to explain it. How did the Jews explain away the resurrection of Christ? They stole his body. The disciples stole his body and willingly got killed for it. You know, that kind of thing. He appeared to Cephas the Twelve and many others over a period of 40 days. So this is the gospel. This is the gospel according to the New Testament. That Christ died for our sins. It was validated. He rose from the dead. It was validated. Now watch this. Uh, a lot of Americans think you kids who have embraced Christ as Savior, some of the kids at your high school think, well, you just think you obey the rules better than we do. You just think you go to church on Wednesday nights and you, you don't cuss as much as we do and you don't smoke as much as we do and you probably don't fornicate as much as the average kid. So that's why you're going to heaven, right? That's not the way you get saved. Salvation is by faith in the work of Jesus. The work that saves you is what Jesus did for you. Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. The fact that you're not going to cuss, and that's important because cussing is basically using things that are sacred or or kind of uh, personal to punctuate your sentences. To use God's name, you're not important enough, and I'm certainly not important enough to use God's name to punctuate my sentences, nor functions of excretion or sexuality that ought to be kind of private, you know? I have a little bit of respect. Uh, and I think cussing is a big one for middle school and high school kids because we all know kids in middle school cuss. We all know some of you have cussed. Once you cuss as a Christian, uh, you're concealing who you are, making it real hard for people to know what side you're on. And that's why you got to draw that line pretty quickly. Because huh, you wouldn't do it in front of mom and dad or Shauna and James or Pastor Brad. But I know it happens. And it happened in my high school. And I did it some too. So I know how that works, you know. Because you want to look sophisticated and cool. But the crowd is really cruel, man. The crowd will turn on you real quick. Don't let the crowd be your motivator. But that diagram is trying to show you that the good stuff you do as a Christian isn't the cause of your salvation. It's not the root. It's supposed to be the fruit. It's supposed to be the effect of it, right? And that's the way it works. That's what the New Testament teaches. So we're saved by the work of Christ, not by us going to church and not cussing and not smoking and not doing things we shouldn't do. 
Uh, all that good stuff is an effect of us being saved, of having trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So let's close like this, take this to heart. The truth of our Christian faith is bigger than people, even the apostles. People come and go. Pastors come and go. The church goes right on. And the reason is because Christianity is based on the facts of who and what Jesus Christ is. And this isn't fantasy or some carefully organized uh, conspiracy theory. This actually, this stuff actually happened. Um, you know, Second Thess says, be careful. Some people aren't going to like this. Some people are perverse men are going to try to hinder us. In fact, even hurt us if we get too excited about living our faith in the world. And I would just say, you know what? How do you react to that? Do you panic? What do you do? Well, to close, let me read what First Peter says you do. When you live your faith consistently enough, people actually notice in the real world, not just at church, but in the real world. Look at this. This is First Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove to be zealous for doing the right thing? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. He's saying in verse 13, it doesn't matter if they don't like you. But even if you do face uh, people looking down their nose at you or trying to intimidate you or trying to marginalize you or vilify you, you're blessed. So don't fear their intimidation. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your, in your hearts and be ready to make a defense to those who ask you for a reason for the hope. You need to be able to articulate your faith and defend it. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they slander you, you're actually a Christian, you're a Bible beater, they used to call us, uh, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right and you don't ever become part of the popular crowd at high school than doing what's wrong and become popular, the prom queen, if that requires certain compromises. For Christ also died for sins, once for all the just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God. Uh, yeah, Christian life is based on the truth of the Savior, and the Christian faith is based on fact, not fantasy, and it's bigger than any any person. It's bigger than James Mitchell, your youth pastor. It's bigger than Billy Graham. It's bigger than the Pope. It's even bigger than James, Peter, James, and John. But it's focused on one person, and I think that needs to be, and hopefully is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, prepare us for spiritual combat, because it's all around us, and help us to see how important this is to be rooted in the truth and committed to living it out. And please empower us to do that. I want to pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as your spirit convicts them of sin. They got it. A righteousness, they can't do it. And judgment, it's coming. As you convict them of that, open their hearts to see and believe in Jesus as the Savior. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've broken my own standards at my worst, much less yours. I can't save myself or fix that. But I, I want you, I want you to be in my life, and I believe Jesus died for me to pay for my sin debt. He rose again from the dead, and I embrace him as my Savior. And now as a believer, I want to submit to him as my Lord, and I pray you'd empower me to do that. Lord, open eyes and ears and hearts uh, to trust in Jesus Christ if they've never done that before. For the bulk of us, we are believers. Help us to see how important it is in this 21st century setting, Peter's writing to a 1st century setting, it's just as important for us to know and be able to defend our faith and help us to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.